0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of DC Power Hour. We've got our Battery Blarney duo. They are calling in remotely from, from Maryland today. And then we've got a special guest who I, I said isn't, it's not even like he's much of a guest anymore, but Lucas Burnt is is back calling us from, from his home office as well. So so we're happy to welcome him back to the show. Welcome back, Lucas and George and Alan. Good to see you guys. Thank you. Thanks. What are we going to talk about today, Alan? Chargers.
1: We're going to talk about Chargers from several different aspects. First of all, I'd like to welcome Lucas back as, not so much as a guest, but as a, shall we say, a semi-permanent fixture now. And we're really uh, interested in what he has to say about Chargers. Coming from that background, most people know, at least know by now, that Lucas had a great career. At Lester, Lester Batteries in Lincoln, Nebraska, and now he's decided to come to Eagle Eye and spread the knowledge. So maybe we'll just give you a minute or so here, uh, Lucas, to introduce
2: yourself. Sure. Uh, My name is Lucas Barrett. Happy to be on the call or on the podcast with with uh, Alan and George. uh, Working in the uh, power sector, power industry uh, for the last number of years has been exciting. I'm kind of person that enjoys education continue to learning and that's what we're here to do is is educate and help people to make the the grid increase on resilience and reliability so those are there's two main focuses um batteries don't work without charger and charging don't work without batteries so you got to have them play well together That's for certain
1: Well, as I said in a previous podcast, Lucas, that when we're talking about battery charging, my with my tenure with a battery manufacturer and, well, actually two different battery companies, one of my problems was, or one of my headaches was uh, warranty support. Every warranty had to come over my desk. Mm-hmm. And I forget the exact figure, but it was well over 50% of the warranties I saw the batteries weren't recharged properly. Ever since it's been, I've been on my soapbox about charging. And uh, we have a couple of published papers, I think Eagle Eye, uh, to talk about that very s- subject. Uh, one of them was peer reviewed papers that says, title was, I think, are you charging your batteries properly? So uh, I'm pretty well versed on that. I know George is pretty well versed on the battery technologies. So maybe we can start with, How did switch mode rectifiers come about? So, George, maybe you're going to address that one, and then we'll we'll take it from there.
3: Okay. Uh, Switch mode rectifiers actually uh, came about in in a sense that as the organizations uh, that were using them, mainly the communications company, the telecom companies, and to be precise, they were looking for smaller rectifiers. In the U.S., it was all for outside plant. In the UK, it was what really accelerated it was that British Telecom were introducing their first totally electronic System X telephone switch. And they wanted a charging system to go with it. So they actually contracted with, at one point, I think it was originally three different companies to develop based on their specification. And their specification actually included the size, the shape and the connections. It was a very, very detailed specification. The only, shall we say, the only freedom the designers had was what they actually put inside the box, but they had to make sure that all the connections and it all they all looked the same. Over the years, that uh, they, they, they took off and we had some of them. One of them was introduced over in the States. By a company at that time called PCP, up in just north of Chicago, and they they were using that, and they sold a lot of them into the what was then the upcoming cellular industry. But uh, so the the point about it was was that the based on the British Telecom spec, they had to be convection cooled, and they had to be modular because they, they wanted to be able to basically do have redundancy built into the systems. The, in those days, if I can remember right from the System X, a couple of systems I saw, the actual chargers were, were built into the same rack assembly as the switch was. They were just a power system at the end of the switch, and then they connected to the battery in a separate battery room. But that's where the history starts. Then within the US, it became important because the, as the telephone companies, and we started building loads of subdivisions. Uh, those subdivisions were outside the range of the existing central office. And uh, the telephone companies did not want to be building more and more central offices. That's an expensive business. So they found a way of ext- using electronics, they could extend the, the voice channels out to a remote site, a remote location, a piece of equipment that you all know very well, our listeners will know very well, those yellow boxes at the end of the, the subdivision, that in the early days there was nothing but complaints about it, until they learned that, oh, by the way, if, you, if we take it away, you won't have telephone service so you know people started to learn to live with the yellow box but the problem was that they there was, there was two things there one they actually wanted batteries that did not need to be topped up which is why we ended up with the valve regulated cells being developed at a very rapid rate to do them the, just a the point here was that the the actual combination of the the ability to do a recombinant cell was known within the battery industry they just didn't they hadn't seen an application for it, and now they did. And they learned it wasn't quite as simple as it should have been, or they thought it was going to be. But at the same time, having having got the, the batteries smaller, they needed to get the chargers smaller. And so that was where the development of switch mode within the US started to come about in a big way. So I think I've set the scene there, Alan, for you. Take it away. Well, so...
1: Basically, the telecom industry was the driver for not only the, you know, the switch mode rectifier, but also for some of the VRLA battery applications. or as People like to call them sealed maintenance free, and we all know they're neither. Actually, in fact, initially they were a maintenance headache. But uh, Lucas, from your perspective, or from a battery, sorry, from a charger, very reputable charger manufacturer, not only for telecom, but also for other applications. Where did, where, did, where did Leicester see it going at the time? Because they were up against all the companies that were kind of waiting at the doorstep of the bell companies, or had been traditional manufacturers for the bell companies. And you mentioned one of them, George PCP, power Conversion Products. I could mention a couple more. One of the big ones being the rain products. But anyway, what a Luke, uh Lucas? What about uh, Lester? Uh, at the time, I believe there were probably I uh, hadn't even looked at Telecom or Switch Mode charging.
2: Like the comment. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, Switch Mode had been on the radar for quite some time. Um, even though they've been he- heavy and still are to some points uh, heavy and SER um, large transformer large pastor based charging switch motor was definitely on the radar and it was from a knowledge standpoint a uh, development standpoint while you're still charging it's technology and you're a technology company it's a big leap it's, it's a big shift internally and for your customer base because you've been doing one thing for, for decades flawlessly and all of a sudden you're going to switch some of that was coming from addition battery manufacturers you know the battery manufacturers as their processes got more refined over the years as their quality jumped exponentially over the years they wanted and saw the need for a higher performing charger and and what was on the other end of that is you know the dc powered equipment it was uh, becoming uh, more it was the it was becoming an increased necessity for higher filtering and a smoother delivery of that voltage and that current. So it was all these things kind of piling up into one. And that was, those were kind of the initial drivers, drivers of it. I'm uh, looking for not only more compact um technology, but the one that that steps out that is actually extremely important today, maybe not so much decades ago, but today certainly is is the security aspect of it um you have to be able to control the security of the software the firmware all that has to be controlled because of the heightened awareness of of outside things you know cyber security concerns and and we had had to make sure we checked all those boxes and and that's one that we didn't see coming all those years ago but you know we tooled up and and got prepared and did we uh, did you control that process? And it turned out it was just a great move, uh, organically.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, filtering. We'll, we'll talk about the security aspects later. I'm glad you mentioned filtering because mm-hmm. that seemed to be, uh, you know, people didn't understand that, uh, especially in the telecom field, and uh, there were some initial teething problems there. But look at the other side. Uh, well, they I won't go to UPS just yet because. You know, if anybody loves to abuse batteries, it's a UPS industry. But the other side of the spectrum, long-established utility industries. who mm-hmm. uh, were heavily into silicon-controlled rectifiers. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe your old company produced a very reliable product there. Mm-hmm. They were reliable. i give mm-hmm. you that. All, oh, yeah. you know, all the manufacturers. But uh, there was a great reluctance to, as switch mode started to take over and Telecom, there's a great reluctance to mm-hmm. even look at it. It was a bad word mm-hmm. in the industry. George and Lucas, how do you see that? Yeah, you know, Let's comment on that. And then you know, where do you see it going from there? How how, do, how, how do, are we going to get acceptance?
3: Well, let's, let's look at when we talk about acceptance it's only in the U.S. that it, the uh, switchboard was not accepted within the u- utility industry. <clears throat> As you know, I spent some time at Advanced Power. While I was there, we developed. We were already supplying our original switch mode rectifiers for Siemens for their substation group, and we, um, we once while I was there, we had a, a development project for a new smaller switch mode rectifier that was to be both convection and fan cooled. And that was 25 years ago. And in those days, Siemens was still totally had to be convection cooled. There was no way we could get away with it. But they were, they, they used it wholeheartedly. They were very happy with it. There was no problem at all. I think I think the the, the is it's just that it's the inertia. They I don't want to, I'm not going to put our utilities down because they're doing an amazing job. But there is a little bit of an element of what works, we're not going to upset because it works. We know how to make it work. We know how to recover after storms and all the rest of it. And we're asking them to start thinking in a different way. It was probably easier to get the the telecom people because the, the telecom engineers are electronics engineers, so they have a much better understanding of the technology behind the switch mode. You know, it's just, I think it, it, it's it's what comes down to all the stuff we're doing at the present moment. It's down to education. Mm-hmm. It really is education. You know, you, you you comment, Alan, about the fact that, you know, when you were doing warranty, that number of the, the batteries would not be fully charged. That hasn't changed. I, I was at a customer's location only a few weeks ago, and we were getting alarms on the monitoring system for low voltage. And when I actually went and looked, uh, you know, I asked the tech that was with me to measure the voltage, we were right at the bottom end of, of the of the range. It was, being, it was nowhere near being charged correctly, you know? But it was, so that education part is probably the most crucial part to get switch mode accepted as well.
2: Education's a big part of it. I, I do agree. The we've stepped into this place where they're asking for better technology while that's also being drilled down the utilities to do more with less. And we're seeing all these questions and we're watching this from kind of the, you know, the, not the cheap seats, but definitely close to the action. And it comes back to education and saying, okay, here's a solution. Here's how it works. But most importantly, here's how it, integrates with what you already do. We don't, we don't need to completely change everything, how you operate. It makes it easier. It helps you attain these goals that you don't think are attainable because you don't know about these things that are out there. So it is education.
1: Yeah. Well, then, you know, same time, a couple of mandates come charging down the road and people will recognize that if FERC and NERC. The these were mandates put out by the basically the federal government. Uh, mm-hmm. FERC is the Federal Electrical Reliability Council, if I'm correct. And NERC is the national. Used to be a North it wasn't it's North American uh electrical reliability, something or else, let's see. Yes. But anyway, these mandates uh stopped the utility companies right in their tracks because there's a couple of things in these mandates, which were driven, by the way, of the extensive power outages that we had in the early 80s. And what that basically said, you know, you will maintain your, your batteries and your chargers, but in order to do so, you will do this, that, and the other. And lo and behold, a lot of the utilities, very good utilities, and, and those people are good, people that operate those, the technicians, them, they're good, but they... Soon learned that they had to do certain things. Um, one was to, to do a lot of monitoring. Uh, the other thing was to, with another mandate, which George will probably talk about, TPL, one not only monitoring, but they have to have inbuilt redundancy, which was, I'll give you, when I first went to utility substations many years ago, I wasn't even there for to look at the charges or anything. I was there to look at a battery problem. But went into the battery room, a substation, and thought, oh, "There's no redundancy here. There's nothing. If we lose a charger, hey, probably take a couple of days to replace. We didn't have a spare on site. If we battery problem, we have to take the battery offline. And you know, was the charger good enough to be a battery eliminator? Operate without the battery? I don't know. In some cases. So anyway." These things started happening, and great drivers. So, But as far as the the charger manufacturers, they kept pushing the SCR chargers into the utilities. And I'm not just talking... Telecom was was beyond the pale. And yes, people did whatever they wanted, basically. Yes, we have a charger. Uh, uh, What's the output ripple like? Uh, We don't know. But... uh, And not only that, they were using smaller batteries. So they didn't have that big filter uh, to go along with the charger. So we're at a stage now where people are having to change. And the the charger's got to work with the batteries, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is my pet subject. But uh, maybe let George talk a little bit about this uh, some of these mandates, which he has been heavily involved with.
3: Yeah, sometimes I wish I hadn't, but that's, uh, you know, that's what comes if you, if you take up teaching, then you've got to learn all about uh, what you have to teach. And all our, the majority of my uh, students over the last eight years have come from the utility industry. So, yeah, the PRC005, which is the first of the mandates the, the that come out, really just established a defined level of maintenance that was required. And it was, it's by IEEE standards, it is not, not strong at all. Because the the, time, the times between the manual inspections are quite long. But, and then the second one was TPL. That came out more recently. And as you said, the whole objective here is TPL is actually a, a design standard, where the, the objective is that they, they are pushing the utilities to identify all the potential single points of failure that can occur within the network and come up with solutions to actually you know eliminate them. Now a lot of that is actually network design, the ability to bring power from another substation in to one so that they can they can transfer it across. So there's a large part of that. but in the dash five edition of it, there was there is one small paragraph that itemizes, five items that they consider to be single points of failure that you need to take action for. One of those five items was the DC power system. They want two chargers, two batteries. However, they do recognise that the large, or probably the largest amount of the existing network do not have buildings that can accommodate another set of batteries and chargers. Help they're already somewhat tight and somewhat not always within electrical safety rules when you're trying to work on the battery because a set of racks have suddenly appeared in front of them. So, you know, that's that's just one of the challenges. But they did. They, they, they understood that, and there is a, a way around this, the problem, and that is if you have monitoring capability of both the DC voltage and... Battery continuity, and that's where the, that's battery continuity is where the challenge is, because you've got to be able to prove or, or know that that battery it has continuity, and that's probably been the biggest challenge for the industry is the continuity part. If you're running if, if you're running a, a battery monitor with ohmic testing on it, then as long as the as long as the the monitor is measuring both the 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 cell ohmic value and all the interconnects, then you have proved there is connection all the way through. But if you're missing one of them, then you've got to alarm on that and say basically, sorry, but this is you know uh, there's a potential here There's batteries open circuit. If I look at that from an operational point of view, yes, it works, yes it will do. But it's not it's not totally definitive, you know, I spent enough time, as you know, doing battery monitoring and, you know, sometimes noise effects, you've missed a reading. So you've got to make sure that you within the monitor, you've got to go back and double check and triple check almost to make sure that that is a valid open or no reading in order to be not causing false alarms because one of the struggles that the utilities face today is the whole problem of false alarms, because they, if they have to roll a truck at 3 o'clock in the morning, they are not happy campers. So, you know, it, it's that that's part of it. But, yes, they, as long as you can prove those two points, you, the, the battery has been charged at the correct voltage and the battery has continuity, then you will get around TPL 001. Well, Lucas, as a the battery manufacturers, they were faced with this,
1: uh, you know, filtering and both EMI and RFI filtering, and also regulation. How did how did they approach that, and where do we stand now with, say, the uh, the switch mode product and filtering and filtering and regulation?
2: And so, from the the grassroots of this, where it started was contacting battery manufacturers. You want to build that relationship, and that's what we did, Uh, build the relationship, and you have general discussions about what your goals are, what you want to do, kind of the direction you're going to go, and then you start asking for test samples, and you start testing, and you have a real honest back and forth of, here's some test data, what do you think? And and now you have a battery manufacturer looking and saying, you're looking out for me. You're, you're trying to help. Thank you. And and you learn a lot. And you learn how to get the most out of, out of these batteries. Everyone's batteries to a point, you know, the chemistry is a little is a little different, obviously, and how they respond, take a charge, discharge, and even over the health of the string, what they look like. And so you try to accommodate as many people as possible and and to to build that relationship. So that's where we started. And then then it goes into things like efficiency and are we charging efficiently? Are we pushing too hard on the battery? Worst case, you know, worst case scenario. What's the recovery time that that we wanna get back out? And then now you're moving into one of the toughest conversations that takes the longest with the user, the customer, who's used this one type of technology it's what they were trained on, it's what they learned on, it's what their foreman journeyman used, and now it's changing. And then it rolls into the, the E word, George's favorite, Alan's favorite education, and and building that up. And so now get through all that, now you're into your regulatory, uh, whether it's the CEC, the DOE, and then complying with your your IEEE's and, and so on. It, it is a long process. It is, it is not easy. But you know, it's for the better. Well,
1: you know, talking about proper battery charging, and, and you hinted at it Lucas, it's uh, not all the same. And I'm not just talking about difference between vented lead acid, overrated lead acid, and lead acid and, ICAD and mm-hmm. lead, what have you. The key factor is the specific gravity of electrolyte in that battery. The give you an example: the if you take a low an electrolyte-specific gravity battery, say, uh, 1.2, 1.17, 1.2 specific gravity electrolyte, the charge voltage of that is somewhere under 2, about 2.17, 2.2 volts.
0: Mm-hmm. If,
1: at the same time, if you have a one of the valve, valve-regulated lead-acid batteries that has high-gravity electrolyte, and believe you me, they're, cre- they're creeping higher and higher all the time, it's, started off at like 1.25 and now we're about 1.38 and I think it's solid on 1.32 gravity electrolyte. Okay, what that means is that the charge voltage, that would have to be about, say, 2.265, even mm-hmm. 2.27 volts per cell. So there you have almost you know, half a volt mm-hmm. difference. Well, the charger doesn't recognize that. So yeah, the charger has to be set to play with the battery.
2: Right. So
1: I often think, wouldn't it be a wonderful idea? And bookmark this conversation, David, in case somebody Mm -hmm. steals it from me. You know, if you had a charger that you could key in the battery. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a XYZ company, you know, 100 ampere hour, 2.3 gravity battery. Mm -hmm. Then the charger could automatically adjust for that. So I think going down the line, something we should be looking at, you know, a smart, really smart charger, Mm -hmm. you know, we're halfway there with some of the monitors, you know, we can tell the monitor what battery we're we're monitoring. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that most of the battery, most of the charger manufacturers. And I guess Lester would fall into that as well. The chargers come out of the factory preset, usually about 2.25 volts per cell. Well, 2.25 2.25 volts per cell may suit a particular battery,
3: mm-hmm. but
1: or a particular product line of batteries.
3: Mm-hmm. But
1: even the same capacity battery from Company A and the, as Company B, there might be a significant difference in the charging voltage required. And so the installers, they think, well, okay, I'm not going to adjust this. I can't adjust this. I'm not allowed to adjust this. Yeah. So here's the battery, which has never been put in service properly anyway, because it hasn't been giving a freshening charge or a conditioning charge or any free charge. So it may, if the charging voltage is too low, it may never, never, ever reach full capacity.
2: And, and, and you bring up a great point. The, you talk about the different gravities. The charger has to be available and to understand or engineered to understand. I'm not, you know, if I'm the charger, I'm not connecting to a new set of batteries every time. You, you, there, there is a amount of implied into the design saying we can assume the customer safely does this much maintenance, so we can safely assume we can do this kind of voltage and this current and this curve. And you you highlight that excellent, oh, beautifully, because because it's not all the same. It's
1: not uh, and the, the other thing is that not only are they you not know, all the same, but take you know a reasonable sized lead acid battery uh, on recharge you can mm-hmm. probably pump as much current into that as as will take,
2: mm-hmm. but with a
1: VRLA battery, AGM VRLA battery, mm-hmm. you may have charge limited uh, requirement there where you can only charge the battery at say usually. They say usually C over five or something like that, which is a capacity over five. So another you know, 100 ampere hour battery, you can only put 20, 20 ampere hours back into it. You know. I I don't mean, you know, it'll taper off off, obviously, but you, you have to have charge current control, shall so we say. Does mm-hmm. that become a big factor?
2: Yes, yes. That that is more and more I see that a lot on the motive side of charging motive batteries where manufacturers will state at this voltage, this is as much current as we want to see. Anything beyond that, voided warranty because the batteries will be dead. Mm-hmm. And you can only stay in that, that window of voltage and current for X amount of time. And if voltage is not attained, then you need to back off or throw a fault. And so those in the motor side are, are very real. And, and have so we're,
1: ask, we're asking a lot from about battery batch, for the charger manufacturers right a lot more um,
2: yes and no but as as batteries become more see it used to be you know the charger manufacturing battery you know this is this is a, a shift i've seen in 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 process for the last three or four years now as the batteries have gotten more complex whether it's lithium or agm or you know, is the chemistry and they really do work hard to separate themselves from competition. You used to be fairly agnostic about it. You, 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 you knew them, they knew you, but there was never any real collaboration. Well, you know, that ship is, it's left the dock. And if you're not already talking with them about collaboration and things like that, you're going to struggle. And the person that's going to pay for it's the customer. And you know, while they do forgive, they don't have, they they have a memory and they will remember when, when the kids didn't play well together. So that's the, that's the shift. They, uh, you know,
1: there's another couple of jobs a charger has to do as well. What's that? Uh, uh, temperature compensation, temperature mm-hmm. compensation charging. And another one is ground fault detection. Mm-hmm. People overlooked. So I know George has got a lot to say about ground fault detection. And uh, then maybe we can talk about temperature compensation. So George,
3: We're talking about protection, yes. But I would, I'd like to follow up on something that Lucas was talking about there, about this interaction between the charger and the battery. That's already taken place on the on the lithium side. A number of the battery manufacturers are already talking to the lithium controller, and the lithium controller will tell them that it needs help that it's got too much variation between the individual cells and it needs help. It needs you either to raise the charger voltage or lower the charger voltage because it can't do it within the the control circuits that they already have to try and keep the cells balanced. And I I really believe that this is is only just the start. I I think we're going to see in the end an integrated package of battery, monitoring system, and charger. Oh. And they may all be working together as, as yeah. a as a combination. And it's, it's not that far away, but it's, you know, I suppose that if, if you look at it down the road, it, it may well be at one point that one of these manufacturers wins out and becomes the boss overall. But I wouldn't like to see where that's going to go. But, you know, you know what I mean, it's, it's going to be a relationship between the manufacturers to build that type of product that does all this work for the customer. Mm-hmm. Because, as Lewis just said, you mentioned the E-word education, you'll hear me talk all the time. Mm-hmm. But it, it's part of it is that we like that education at the present moment. The, the both the telecom and the utility industry have gone on for so long with long established people that understood what it took to make it happen, mm-hmm. you know, and that was that was it. We we seen it. Remember when they broke up the Bell companies? Things changed there for all the telecom. You know, think about the people like all the people Alan, you and I know it at, L- at Lorraine. They they went in and they talked to an engineer in that. Uh, Kelco, and the, the engineer told them exactly what they wanted. So they fed that back into manufacturing. When we broke up the Bell Company, so all of a sudden, a lot of those systems engineers, application engineers, were let go because they couldn't put a profit margin on them. Mm-hmm. That's where the same happened to the battery technicians. You know, we, what what profit did they make for us? So they were let go. So what happened? A lot of the engineering came out of the company. And into the the sales engineers that were that had originally been supporting because they knew what the customers wanted, so they could they would come and talk about it and then take that back in. But we've lost that level of engineering as well now. You know, they're all old like you and I, Mister Byrne. No? and they're yeah. not all as stupid as you and I. Still working. Yeah. Well, so me so anyway, my point is, I'll come back now to <laughs> ground fault detection. Yes. It's an important part. It's most of the most of the ground fault detection now is built into the chargers. The biggest challenge I have with it is the fact is that it's not always easy to disconnect it. And if you're using the standard form of ground fault detection of a balanced resistor network, which actually does put a very a ground onto the battery, but through two very very high low value resistors. If you start to use any form of the detection system to try and find that ground fault from whichever manufacturer, our own one, GFL 1000, it applies an AC signal into the circuit and it looks for a ground. You apply it between ground and that. And no matter how high that resistance is, it will still see that as a ground. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: And you end up chasing yourself back to the charger over and over again and you go, why couldn't they make made this so simple so I could turn the damn thing off, you know? Because, you know, unless you know the charger very well, you don't know which PCB to pull out to try and get rid of the, you know? Right. So it's, it's it's that's it. Groundfall detection is very important. People don't realise it actually puts the, the the service engineers at risk safely You know, they think that they think that working with something is not grounded. You know, they they imagine of the bird sitting up on the one thirty five kV line. You no, know, as long as that bird doesn't touch ground, it's perfectly okay. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
3: so you know theoretically you should be the same way as long as you're not touching ground and there's no ground path. But it's very difficult for you as a person to stay ungrounded totally. So you know, because concrete floors conduct. So yeah, ground fault ground is important. And, and so is temperature compensation. The
1: temperature compensated charging, now, for those that are not familiar with it, methods where you adjust the charger output voltage to basically keep a constant current with respect to the battery temperature or the ambient temperature. You know, you don't want to to have the, a lot of current flowing into the battery, the battery's heating up. So... I know most of the ma- manufacturers address this. So, Lucas, can you add any words of wisdom? The, the main thing I've seen with it is they don't all, always use the same temperature compensation factor. Well, by that, I mean you know the, the number of degrees Fahrenheit or degrees C that the, the charger will compensate for using a preset.
2: So, Right. If you're running with a preset... And you cannot adjust that, and you have to go with what's stuck, what you're stuck with, or just what's available. That that can be almost worse in some certain in some situations. Uh, that that can almost be worse. So what you want is a system that you can very definitively say, at this temperature, we want you to back off this many millivolts per cell, or at this temperature, if it's getting chilly, we want you to lean in this many millivolts per cell. You want to be able to really dial that in because that's that's something that a battery manufacturer is going to want to know if there's an issue with the batteries. Were you in temperature compensation? And, and what did you set it for? That That's a big one.
1: Well, the uh, other thing is one of my pet peeves is that some of the maintenance organizations will get a little bit lazy. And when it comes to battery charger voltage, mm-hmm they'll take that at the charger, especially if the charger has a pretty reliable uh, digital meter. Mm-hmm. And they don't consider the voltage drop between the charger and the battery terminals. Uh, you know, you've got to t- take that charger voltage mm-hmm. at the battery terminals, sure. not at the charger.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: also, you've got to be able to, char- to know what that voltage drop is going to be Judging on the size and length of cable, so you can compensate for the voltage drop at the charger.
2: Right.
1: Okay. It's no good setting the manufacturer's recommended float voltage to the charger if you're going to get a half a volt drop between the charger and the battery. And that's <laughs> all overlooked.
2: That brings up a, a, a good point. You know, we've discussed that, you know, these new mandates for adding things to these substation control houses, and there's no room. So you're gonna add to it, best thing I can do is put the charger around the corner down the hall. Mm -hmm. And that's, you gotta compensate big time for that. You have to be aware of that. And you need to be measuring not only what's going into the chart, into the battery string, what's coming out the other end to to the equipment. And those are all things that must be accounted for. uh, Or you're going to have some problems not there long after.
3: Well, one of the problems you've got as well, Alan, is, and I, I've seen it over and over again, you know, when, when we ship the char- one of the, the Leicester chargers out the door, it has a temperature sensor in it, and it has the um, sense leads that should go to the battery. I'll guarantee you that at least 70% of them that get installed, that's still in the, in the box when it's thrown out to the garbage because they don't know to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, there's yeah. no temperature compensation on it, and there's no... Uh, and, and they have put the sense leads. And as Lucas just said, if you've got the battery in the the charger in another room or at the other end of the room, in some cases it is, mm-hmm. then you need those sense leads on it if you're going to accurately uh, charge that battery.
1: Yeah. And you've got a couple of code complications there as well, George, as well. Lucas said, you know, I read somewhere, in the old days when I used to... You know, the code looked like the back of my hand was that, you know, the charging device or disconnect device had to be within sight of the battery. So that's often okay. overlooked. The other thing I'm uh, thinking about was the, the battery, you know, battery charging and uh, the fact that uh freshening charge and, and routine load testing, you know, that's not always considered. Uh, so anybody want to? comment on
2: that it's it it comes back to we need to offer them more tools to do what is required of them and if you have two substation technicians and they're tasked with visiting you know a hundred battery groups individually a year there's only so many work days in the year somebody's gonna be sick or get god forbid hurt if they find an issue it throws their pace off and if we can give them technology give them tools and technology to help assist this to keep up with the pace that they're required to hit then they'll be successful and that success means their their infrastructure is more resilient and reliant but it'll ultimately come back to the education side of it is educating that it can be done these are tools you can have it to use and put it in that way that best fits your infrastructure.
1: Yeah, so some chargers uh, have the capability of folding back the uh, charge voltage to a level below the open circuit voltage of the battery, uh, but still act as a you know a a crutch underneath it, so it doesn't let it fall too
2: far. Uh, that, that is correct.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is this a viable method?
2: Yes, it is. I want you to think of the image of uh dad behind the child that the train wheels are off the bike and he's going to let them see if they can ride alone without the training wheels. But dad's right there to catch you or mom or uncle or grandpa. They're there to catch you if you fall and they're not going to let you smack your head on the concrete. Same idea with the charger. It, it steps back. We're right there in case it falls and and we catalog it to make sure everything continues as you should. And then, then help arrives, you know, form of tensions.
3: Yeah. This is something, Alan, I was,
1: again, Somebody's was used. A kind yeah. of hypothetical, so. But anyway, I think it's something that's overlooked and should be used more. You might even get to the day where you wouldn't have to do a, a load test if you have enough data to support it. Mm-hmm. But there again, nothing, nothing. Whether it's a sophisticated monitor, what have you is a substitute for a load test, load test on the battery. Funny things happen and the, and I've seen it all. And George has probably seen it and you've seen it, Lucas. How are we doing for time, David?
0: I think we're, we're almost to the end here. So we might have to wrap it up and then revisit this at a later date. If you guys want to.
1: So I'll ask the question. We've got where we are now, good chargers, good batteries. What's the biggest challenge? You know, a year ago or two years ago, we, we were said we need better batteries, we need better chargers. But what's the challenge now? So I know George has already said something about going down the line about smart batteries and smart battery chargers. But anybody think of anything else? Anything else we need to do with the chargers?
2: I think I think technology wise, the the two are pretty. Well, at the top of where they, their game right now. Yeah, there's some always room for innovation in, in the next generation, which we've had plenty of conversations about. But right now, the, the biggest challenge is going to be getting the word out and, and getting in front of them, helping them quiet down the noise of everything that's trying to get their attention, to understand that this is a viable option to take away some heart headache and heartburn.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the other industrial chargers, as you know, use a three-step charging technique or even a pulse charging technique. Any place for that in our industry at the moment?
2: I want to hear what George has to say on that one. Pardon?
3: All right, I feel feeling like you may get passed back to me. <laughs> um, I will be honest with you. Um... In some ways, the S3 step is, is a good idea, but it manages it better. But it's, it's much more to do with people understanding the importance of uh, the combination of battery and charging and how you use them. You know, they are, unfortunately, most of the time still sold as there's a battery, there's a charging manufacturer, a battery manufacturer, And as we know, we're a monitor manufacturer. And the three aren't necessarily talking to each other. And the customer doesn't have the application knowledge to do it. It's the one thing I've realized over the last six months is the one thing that is missing at all levels in all these companies are what we used to refer to as applications engineers, which effectively, Alan, it's what you and I have been for most of our life. We, we take these manufactured products and we try to put them together in a system that works to meet the requirement of the customer. But there's there's nobody doing that now. You know, you go in and install, somebody goes in and installs a charger and somebody else goes in and installs the battery. Mm-hmm. And as we now know, and at least in some of the stuff I'm working with, is nobody went in and actually set the two of them to work together. So there's a lot more of that that has to be done. You know, I, we, I think not, we've got I... the technology there to do anything we want, or at least we have the base of the technology, because now almost all our chargers are microprocessor controlled. And you know, if you've got a microprocessor, you can always go in and change the software. Maybe not as easy as it should be sometimes, but <laughs> you can do it. And the yeah, yeah. big thing is that in some cases now we're getting to the second or gen- third generation of software that are going into these chargers. And there's been a lot learned, especially the software department, where they, they, they realize that they need to make this a little bit more modular and not quite also locked in, because no matter how many times they ask for a spec, they'll guarantee the moment they release it that somebody comes and says, Oh, why didn't you do this? And I can see Lucas nodding his head because
1: he's been there. Yeah, the, my pet peeve at the moment is uh well it's two actually, but in the UPS industry we have enough problems there with batteries and chargers. But that the ends up usually that the UPS manufacturer or the UPS installer is responsible for installing the batteries. And that just doesn't work. Unless they're very, very familiar with batteries, yeah, there's going to be a screw-up somewhere. So, And uh, with response to your forward thinking, George, and your forward thinking is always good, but with the, you know, having a charger that is a controller, as in the lithium example, better do it quick because I don't know how long lithium is going to be around. So and that's kind of tongue-in-cheek.
0: So,
3: <laughs> oh, but there'll be something else. We all you know, the other, and we still got lead. Remember, you're the guy, lead is not dead. That's yes. right, and it's it's not going to be dead, boy. Long time to come.
1: Yes, well, that's right. I am a firm believer in that. But anyway, I'd like to thank Lucas, for participating. you certainly be welcome in future podcasts.
3: And, uh, George, as usual, I'm going to give you the last word. As usual. I'm worried about this, you know. I am worried about this. <laughs> I <I've> forgot <heard laughs> the last word at all. The, what, almost 50, 60 years I've known you. Okay. Well, all I can say is that I actually think we are getting someplace. Okay. From some of the stuff that you and I over the years have talked about as we've worked at every level in this industry, yeah, you know, uh, it's it's really nice to see switch mode taking off within the utility industry. As I said, having having lived with it while I was back working for Advanced Power for those couple of years, you know, and and seeing how far it was had moved over there and what you can do with it, uh, the, the world's are oyster. We just, but we got to under, We've also got to understand the limitations, and we got to understand how to. I know they were going to say sell it, but it's no, it's help the customer understand the benefits of it. Then you don't have to sell it. They'll want it. Right. You
2: know, education.
3: Yes. Oh, thank you, Lucas. But they, they, they you know, I, I always get in trouble with this one because my comment is based on an old Geico ad is that, you know, uh, if you want to change out uh, any of our competitors' SCR rectifiers, it requires a lift, it requires uh, electricians and all the rest of it. If you need to change out one of our switch mode rectifiers, the IPMs, you can actually send a salesman in there to swap it out. I'm a going to be in word. trouble
1: again. This is not a last word, but I, I need to warn people about something I felt we overlooked. Great, applying the battery, applying the charger, setting everything up. One thing you've got to be conscious of is check the load. What is the load? Is that load going to take the extrusions of the charger? Is that going? To, is that going to load going to overheat because you're raising that uh, charge voltage up? You got to mm-hmm. know the load. So you're talking system engineering again.
3: You got to mm-hmm. know the charger. You got to know the battery. You got to know the load. So,
0: agreed.
3: The environment where you're putting it. That was your last word, George. Thank you.
0: There it is. Thank you. That was the absolute last word. So (laughs) great work, guys. Thank you so much, Lucas, for joining. and, And George and Ellen, as always, great topic, great conversation. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye.